You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Well, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Adrian Johns, who is a professor of history at the University of Chicago, and also the author of a number of books. Most recent book is called The Science of Reading, Information, Media, and Mind in Modern America. Two other books, Nature of the Book, Print and Knowledge in the Making, and also Piracy, The Intellectual Property Wars from Gutenberg to Gates. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, what I find interesting about this book is that you look at the history of the science of reading from its earliest days here in America back in the 19th century all the way to the present. And what's astonishing to me is that these kind of reading wars have been going on for as long as they have, right? Because all of the science has direct implications for how we teach reading. And this has become something that's quite political in today's world. And there's headlines even right now about the reading wars. I did a podcast with Dan Willingham a couple of years ago, and he was talking about this. And so there's all sorts of interesting implications that go well beyond the science of reading and really have to do with the reading of science, to put it that way. But maybe we can start off by just going back into the earliest days of this science and ask the question, why did this start in America? I mean, it seems like there is a particular idiosyncratic concern in American political economy with creating a literate, educated public that may not have existed in other countries. Is that kind of what drove this, the idea that Jeffersonian democracy requires people that are capable of becoming informed and participating in the civic arena? That's certainly a big part of it, yes. That notion of having an informed citizenry, that that's essential for a democratic republic, that goes back to the American Revolution. In some ways, you can trace it back further than that to Puritans. But in the late 19th century, there are certain circumstances that really make that concern much more pressing than it had been before. One of them is the awareness that people have in the late 19th century, that they're living in a almost a new world when there's big industry, big corporations like railroads and power companies and things like that, and big media. This is the moment when the modern newspaper press really takes off with technologies like linotype and industrial printing, industrial papermaking. So there's a sense that people have that they're living in a kind of print-saturated environment to an extent that they really hadn't before. And one of the concerns that arises because of that is, is a concern not just with literacy per se. Literacy is the old concern, that you need to have a literate population so that they can vote in an informed way. You need to have now a population which is not only able to read, but actually does read and is able to kind of exercise mastery of this environment, which means certain things. You need to be able to respond fast because imagine you're in a streetcar in in Philadelphia or something like that and you're going down the street and out of the window, what are flashing past you are advertising billboards, newspaper headlines, all of this sort of stuff. And you need to be able to not just be a victim of this, but to be able to surf it, as it were. 
It's not entirely unique to the United States. There's a big international phenomenon in the late 19th century to try to create educated, literate workforces that can actually exercise this kind of mastery. So you see it in France, you see it in the UK and in Germany as well. But in the US, I think the combination of the, just the speed of industrialization, the ambition that you're going to become the world's most powerful nation, and the centrality of informed democratic citizenship, those three things come together in, I think, a unique way to create a demand for a science that can explain and underpin all of this. And I think at the same time, right, there was this increasing Darwinian awareness that this was somehow uniquely human or sort of unnatural in some way, right? This idea that we ingest this text, right? It's a particular type of human way of processing information. Yeah, absolutely. So so that's the other thing about this era, right? The end of the 19th century. It's the era of Darwinism, also social Darwinism, eugenics. And one of the, so, so that's the central point of Darwinism in a certain sense is the notion that we are actually animals. We're not different in some kind of essential theological way from other living creatures around there. We've evolved to be the way that we are. The thing about reading, though, is that, as you say, as far as we know, no animal has ever done it. No, no non-human animal has ever done it. So that seems, in a certain way, to set humans apart. And the question then becomes, well, how has it evolved this way? How have we uniquely evolved brains and bodies that facilitate this kind of unique action that no other creature does, as far as we know? So some of the first scientific efforts directed at reading were actually premised on Darwinian evolutionary principles. And they would go back and look at old scripts, for example, hieroglyphics in ancient Egypt or early Greek inscriptions, and try and track sort of social evolutionary pathways from those early scripts and the kinds of reading that they thought that existed then through to what happens now. And it's there is a eugenic part of this. There's a notion that in application, a science of reading can tell us how to make our schools create the next generation who will be more efficient, more adapted to the world in which they live. So in other words, there's a kind of engineered evolution that you might create with this. Uh, it goes by the name of school hygiene quite often, which links it with all kinds of other concerns to do with environmental control, furniture even. How do you create good posture in students? Things like that. But no, it's absolutely aligned with evolutionary notions of human nature and human society. And of course, this also coincides with the creation of the research university in the United States. And some of these early pioneers, like Cattell, they were sort of creating the modern discipline of psychology, right? I mean, psychology was being formed at this time and didn't really have circumscribed boundaries. And what I found fascinating about these early, quote, psychologists is that they were focused more on, I guess, what you might think of as the body, right? They were focused more on perception, right? They were really interested in the eye, right? And, you know, the mechanisms by which information got to the retina, you know, and less, a little bit less concerned with kind of what happened after that. Why do you suppose that was? I mean, why were they so, was this sort of a response to some other set of concerns or was it a, a desire to be at the forefront of science? Stuff that you could measure because you couldn't measure what was happening in the brain so you could measure what was happening with the body? I think to a large extent it's that. It actually comes out of Germany 
canonically, where Germany is the location where experimental psychology came into being. And it was called at that point psychophysics. And the, the idea of it was to try to create a science of human nature that would be as well-grounded as experimental physics was. So at that point, experimental physics was seen as the sort of definitive science, of, the science of sciences. And just as with experimental physics, laboratories like the Cavendish in Cambridge were creating really secure, technically determined, instrumentally determined facts on which you could then build elaborate theories like electromagnetism and so forth, eventually relativity, things like that. The thought was, if we're going to have a science of human nature, we need to do this the same way. So we go into a lab, we create a lab, we create an armory of instruments, and these instruments can measure human capacities to very fine degrees of accuracy and precision. And in particular, what they look for is actually reaction times. So if you're shown a character, the letter E or something, how long does it take you to take that in and do something with it? And the thought was that if you can get this baseline repertoire, repertory of technically secure facts, after that, you can build with them into a notion of what it is the brain's actually doing with these. But that's deferred for the moment. And later, of course, it gets slightly sort of pushed aside altogether with the formation of behaviorist psychology, as it comes to be called. But in the first instance, it's more just deferred than abandoned. And you're right that there's a little generation of male young scientists who go to Germany, get trained up in these labs, come back to the United States and set up the first generation of experimental psychology labs in this country at Johns Hopkins, Columbia, other Clark University, places like that, University of Chicago. And a a striking number of them are really actually interested in this phenomenon of reading because it becomes almost like an experimental test case. Can you build a science by analysing this practice? And that means looking at things like how do the eyes move when you scan over a page of print? And so they develop a whole armory of instruments, like I say, to try to measure this extremely precisely. And it is where experimental psychology comes from, really, in this country. That's the foundation of it. Well, it seems like there are also some parallels with kind of Taylorism, right? There was this idea around efficiency, right? So whether it's response time, reaction time, they talked about the readability and the using, looking at the different typefaces to figure out which ones can be read more quickly. And so was there a concern with efficiency here? And was this primarily around the employment environment or just in general about making sure that people can get as much information as possible in the shortest period of time? There's certainly a big concern with efficiency. And it's partly to do with industrial environments, like how efficiently can your workers read instructions for machinery, things like that. How fast can they do it? How much can they retain when they do it? But it's also efficiency more widely distributed in society. So everybody is supposed to read newspapers at this point. And the world of peak newspaper, there's a period in the mid-20th century when people are getting several newspapers a day. And I still get three a day. <laughs> <laughs> paper copies. I get my paper. I look at several online. I don't, I mean, I guess I do subscribe to several, but I only get one on, on actual newsprint. But yeah, so, so there's this idea that you have to be able to efficiently master this. And the, the way they talk about it, though, is only partly in terms of efficiency per se. Quite often, the way they talk about it is in terms of fatigue, which is almost the result of inefficient reading. And that's sort of why they think that some people don't read is because it's too much work, right? Yeah, 
it's fatiguing. And the link you bring up with Taylorism is absolutely key to this, because as with Taylorite researchers who were looking at factory workers and how efficiently they moved their bodies on the industrial production lines, and using cameras to try to see the smoothness of human motion and, how, and then trying to train people to move more smoothly, thinking it would be more efficient and less fatiguing. That's pretty much what these early scientists of reading wanted to do with your eyes. They wanted to train you to move your eyes smooth, as smoothly as possible across the page and as rhythmically as possible. So it would be like choreography, it would be like dancing. And just as if you dance, you can actually keep going quite a long time if it's rhythmic as opposed to if it's not rhythmic, in which case you get tired very quickly. They thought people could read more effectively for longer if their eyes were trained to move in this kind of rhythmic, bouncy way across the page. And they were using cameras, just as the Taylorites did in factories, to try to um, trace eye movements and then to train other people to get those eye movements in themselves. So it's absolutely, you know, the, your point about Taylorism is absolutely right. It's, there's a lot of that in here. And it was right at this time when they discovered, right, with the eye movement camera and this tachistoscope, which makes an appearance, you know, for the next couple of decades, it was with this equipment that they discovered that people read in a way that was completely counterintuitive at the time, right? That the saccades and the looking at just single points on the line and that rather than moving smoothly, it would be like this staccato movement. They also, I think, discovered... A bit later that when people are looking at images, they looked at them in ways that were very different from the way in which not only academics thought they looked at it, but also the way artists might have thought they looked at it. And this discovery is what kind of led to a lot of the controversies, right, down in later time periods. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, so one of the things they find very early on, it's actually discovered in France originally, is that, like you say, when you read a line of text, at least in alphanumerics in English, there's a question about what happens if you read in Japanese or Chinese or something. But if you're reading in English, you subjectively might feel that your eye moves smoothly across the line. But it doesn't, actually. It kind of hops. And each hop is called a saccade. And then the moments where it stops between the hops are called fixations. And it was found, or at least argued, that you only actually take in things when your eye is stopped. So you jump, you stop, you take in a little cloud of meaning. You move on and then you take another cloud of meaning when you stop again. And what the eye movement cameras can tell you is how regular those stops are and how, much, how wide the gaps are between them. And do you ever go backwards? Which you do sometimes. If you feel you've made a mistake or something like that, you'll go backwards. And then they, the thought was you could train people to move in larger leaps and more regular leaps and go backwards less and be more accurate in where they stopped. So it's a very physical kind of thing. And the tachistoscope then, which is a, like a slide projector that shows up an image for a very, very brief period of time, like a hundredth of a second, that can measure, and again, hopefully improve, how much you take in at each stopping point, at each fixation. So the idea is that between the two of them, you can develop sort of superpower readers. So this became a, an actual kind of program of action that you can train an entire population to be better at this. It became a huge industry, right? In the post-war period, was it the post-war period with... Ultimately, Evelyn Wood came out of this whole... I remember as a kid seeing ads for Evelyn Wood School of Speed Reading. I don't know if it still exists, but you still hear about it. Wood per se, I don't know. But certainly, I mean, the enterprise still exists, sure. 
if you look in the right place, you can find lots of ads for speed reading programs even now. You may have seen there was a, a like five or 10 years ago, there was a bit of a fad for screen fast reading things that would show you up one word at a time. So rather than moving your eyes along the line, you kept your eyes focused at the same place and the words moved in front of your eyes. And the idea was that you could read things like novels much faster if you did this. I don't know whether it worked or not, but it's a similar kind of notion, right? It all sort to do with efficiency, fatigue, motion, things like that. And the other thing that you pointed out just now about viewing images is also true. So in the 30s, especially the psychologist called Guy Buswell started adapting the machines that they were using to track people's eye movements in looking at texts to seeing how people looked at pictures. And what they found was that something very similar was happening with pictures. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't at all what artists and aesthetic theorists thought was going on, which was that our eyes were moving smoothly over lines. And in fact, the more smooth the line, the more our experience of beauty, because it was easier to do that. That's not what happens, they find. What happens is that your eyes are kind of jumping around. And if anything, they jump around less on more jagged kind of images. So it's the opposite of what people's subjective experience seemed to be. And one of the things about that was that it was apparent to the researchers at the time, that only becomes apparent outside later, that really the point of application for that should be marketing. Because if you can track where people's eyes go on an image, you can create images that will guide people's eyes unconsciously to particular elements of them. So you can create more powerful advertising billboards, that kind of thing. And that becomes a big issue in marketing really from the 60s onwards, when marketers start using later versions of things like eye cameras to see how... Oh, we still teach this stuff. Yeah, we still teach this in marketing. Yeah, it's a big thing. And it's, a, it's actually become, I don't know whether you've seen this, there are now AI-powered, as it were, pseudo-readers that you can use. So if I come up with a design for a poster or an ad or something like that, it used to be that to do this kind of work, you had to show it to something like 100 human viewers and then do statistics on where their eyes went using eye cameras. Now we have AIs that are trained by looking at where human, humans put their eyes. And you can, as it were, virtually get 100 readers to look at your poster. And it will give you a kind of cloud image of where human eyes would go if human eyes were looking at it. It's much faster, much cheaper, a little bit dispiriting because it seems like we're being cut out of the loop altogether, but it's a thing. Yeah, well, there's a whole other area of research that came out of that insight, which you talk about with this guy Fitz. I found that, I mean, I've always been fascinated with kind of user interface work and user experience work, and sometimes we call it human factors engineering, but that insight began with this guy Fitz during the war, right? Yeah, Paul Fitz, he was a psychologist in the Midwest who got attached to a program to try to find out what was happening to United States military aircraft that would come into land without having been necessarily even in a battle and crash on landing for no obvious reason, which happened a lot, in a dismaying amount. And what Fitz did was to sit an eye camera from this science of reading world in the cockpit of a plane and have a pilot repeatedly land using instruments. And what he found was that at critical moments, the eyes of the pilot were flitting between instruments because the pilot was slightly confused, which somewhat has to do with the lack of standardization of cockpit displays at that time. And then he started experimenting with different typefaces and different layouts on, in the cockpit. And one result of that is standardization of cockpits, which is what we still have now in planes. But another result is that he went back and he started thinking about this as a general problem. 
How efficiently can you move your eyes from one informational point to another? How fast can you do that? How accurately can you hit the second point? And he creates a thing called Fitts Law, which is a quantification of this, which in the end is then revived by human-computer interaction people in the 60s, as you mentioned, human factor engineering. And it becomes the criterion by which it's decided how to develop pointing devices for modern personal computers. So the thing about a mouse is that it is a Fitts Law device, as they say. A mouse can get arbitrarily close to the ideal speed of moving from one point to another with accuracy. Whereas something like a keyboard with, say, a cross pattern of keys or a joystick or something like that is not a Fitts Law device. You can't get to that sort of arbitrary degree of closeness for it. So in that light, the degree of separation between these early science of reading people using eye cameras and how we, on an everyday basis, use Windows computers and Macs and so forth, is basically, there's almost no degree of separation. I mean, we're dependent on things that were found out from those techno-scientific practices. Well, at the end of the book, you talk about the Vincennes story, right? And it seemed almost like from that story that they hadn't learned the lesson that Fitz was trying to communicate. As far as I can tell, yeah. I mean, some the Vincennes stuff is, part of it is still classified. So it's you want to be a little bit circumspect about how much one claims about it. But there was a, an official report which was issued. I can go by that. So it does seem to be the case that with the Vincennes, they were using a, a sort of missile defense system called Aegis, just a general air defense system called Aegis. And this was originally designed for tracking and countering large formations of Soviet bombers in the Atlantic. But in this case, you had a single ship trying to track individual small boats and aircraft. And for that, it turned out that the informational display of Aegis was completely unsuited because it gave you things like altitude in one place and velocity in another place. And you had to move your eyes between these two things in the middle of a ship that was pitching, doing sharp right turns to escape Iranian speedboats and things like that. And as far as one knows, the outcome of this was a tragic confusion. The operators believed that what they were seeing was an incoming air attack. And in fact, it was an airliner taking off from Iran. And so the Vincent shot down this airliner. And yes, it does seem that that was a key moment in really driving home the point that this stuff is not unimportant. It's what real consequences come from getting the human-computer interaction right or wrong in this case. Yeah, my understanding is that the Notre Dame burned down because there was a problem with the interface between the smoke detector display and the employee who was on the job site who was on his first day at work. So (laughs) that if there was a better design or at least more training, that whole disaster could have been avoided. Yeah, I hadn't heard that, but I wouldn't be that surprised. But the other discovery that happened at the time, it wasn't just that they learned that people have these saccades and this rhythmic way of reading, but also that people at least advanced readers, would take in entire words and perhaps at least they speculated entire sentences and maybe even paragraphs, but that they weren't reading letter by letter. And this had consequences for how they thought reading should be taught. Absolutely. And this this is where the reading wars that we still endure kick off, really. But the actual discovery of it goes back a long way. People were arguing this kind of thing back in the 19th century. But it's only really when they have these instruments that they can start to claim it as a matter of science. So it's around 1890s, 1900 that it starts to be a really sort of, as it were, a scientific fact. And James McKean Cattell, who worked at Columbia, is the person most associated with it. 
But yeah, the idea was that they would measure skilled readers and they would find that, as you say, skilled readers didn't read character by character. They read by larger patterns than that. And it might be individual words or if you saw a phrase that was just immediately recognisable like once upon a time, then you might take in that whole phrase. Contrary-wise, if you found a word that you really were unfamiliar with, then you might go back to character by character. But the idea was then that gives a target. If you can train people to take in larger units, then you can make them faster, more efficient, more effective readers. So the whole program of teaching people to read becomes that, really. It's not to teach people to pass characters, let alone phonically, because phonics is doing it, sounding things out, delays things. What you want to do is to get them, first of all, to read silently without an internal vocalization, and then to recognize larger and larger patterns. So there are technologies for doing this in the 1930s that are circulated through schools. Even something like the Dick and Jane books, which educated millions of people in America, books like that are designed to get your child to jump from word to word in the way that the scientists reading thought that they should. It was actually those Dick and Jane books were actually designed by one of the Chicago scientists of reading. And the reason why the Reading Wars comes about as a result of this is that in the 50s, by the time of the 50s, it was widely perceived that the training of people to read character by character actually wasn't happening at all, that it had been so downgraded that nothing like that was happening. And instead, what children were being taught to do was essentially to guess at what they were treating as like holistic images. So you'd see the word, I don't know, hospital, and you wouldn't read H-O-S-P, you would see it as a unit like that. And it would be, when you first saw it, it would be accompanied by an image of a hospital or a Red Cross or something. And the idea was that you would train people to do this instantaneously, to associate the images. And the origins of the reading wars come about when critics fight back against that notion and say, look, at the heart of it, there really must be some tuition in interpreting characters, because otherwise, when you come up with new words, you're not going to be able to do anything with them. And it comes down to really a notion of what reading actually is at the heart of it. So yeah, it's a, that business about being able to recognize patterns is a long-standing contentious piece of this science to this day. Now, some of the kind of interested parties in these debates were the textbook publishers. And I had no idea that there were so many copies of these textbooks circulating, right? So you talk about the, was it the McGuffey textbooks or the ones that were popular before the Dick and Jane textbooks. And these, I guess, were more phonic oriented, but they also had these moral messages that made them sort of uninteresting. So I think part of the debate was not just about the method of instruction, but also the content of these books. And there was some discussion around how do we make these books more interesting so that kids actually want to read them and don't view it as some kind of chore? Yeah, that, no, and you're right. They circulated in enormous numbers. By the late 19th century, the textbook industry in the US is starting to be agglomerated into a relatively small number of trusts. There were antitrust agitations about this in the way that we're in many American industries. But the combination of this agglomeration and the fact that increasingly states were using centralized purchasing boards meant that there was a lot at stake economically for these companies. If you were a textbook manufacturer, you basically had to convince the purchasing board for, say, Texas to take on your book. And then you had it made, right? You didn't have to sell individually, particularly, in the way that previous generations had. And this also contributes to the Reading Wars fight when it breaks out, because it means that 
the situation is much more homogeneous than it had been. So there's not really a variety, at least at the level of public schools. But yeah, and there are, one of the things about introduction to reading books is that every generation seems to find them incredibly tedious. But there are different ways to be tedious. So the McGuffey books were sort of moralistically tedious. So they were always trying to convey morals. So they often used little stories that were taken from, as it were, real literature and ported down and put into pint-sized forms. The Dick and Jane ones are boring for a different reason, which is that they're so bland. Very little actually happens in them. And you start having children being made to read rather sort of pointless sentences. I actually remember this from when I was a child in the UK. We didn't quite have Dick and Jane. We had Peter and Jane in the UK. And I remember reading these sentences, which made no sense to me because they were so banal. You know, so it would be something like, Peter walks to the tree. Peter's dog looks on. I I remember this phrase, looks on, which meant nothing to me. Nobody ever said looked on in oral speech. I've never heard anybody say that, but it was in these books. So one of the things that Rudolf Flesch, who really launched the reading wars in the 1950s, says in his kind of brilliant attack on this whole system is that children are being forced to read these absolutely banal kind of soul-destroying things in the name of a science of pattern recognition that he thinks is fake anyway. One result of this, incidentally, is that one of the publishers faced with this uproar in the mid-50s turned to a guy called Theodore Giesel and said, here's a bunch of words. Come up with something that children will actually want to read using these words. And that's what became The Cat in the Hat. Yeah, I love that. Which is really a kind of counterblast to this idea that books for, for learner readers have to be tedious. And, you know, the, the Why Johnny Can't Read book, right, when it came out, I mean, you talk about that as illiteracy panic, right? But there were multiple illiteracy panics that occurred. And a lot of them were driven by, again, concerns about American civic readiness, right? So Sputnik really turbocharged this panic. And I think... Part of it also was a concern around the unevenness of literacy. And in particular, there were academics, I guess, in the Northeast that were particularly concerned about the illiteracy that we saw in the South. Yeah, no, that's really true. And the first important, yeah, you're right, there are multiple illiteracy panics. I don't know when they start, but they're certainly big by the 1920s. And as you say, with Sputnik, they arise again. And What Sputnik reminds us partly is that there's also a national security aspect to them. So the first big 20th century literacy panic happens in the wake of World War I as a result of intelligence tests that have been given to American soldiers, where it was actually found from these intelligence tests that large proportions of the American young adult male population were not able to read. And before that, we didn't really have good data, right, on literacy, right? It depends, right? It depends. I mean, this is a perennial problem too. Like, how do you measure literacy? I think the way in which it's measured changes from time to time. So literacy, first of all, literacy is not a binary, but sometimes you'll see these statistics where it'll say a certain percentage of the population can't read. But I mean, clearly there's degrees of literacy, right? Yeah, and the real problem lies in there because the issue is not that people really cannot read at all. I mean, there are some people who really cannot read it at all, but that's not where the attention usually is. The attention is on people who can read in a kind of basic functional way, but don't read and have never therefore developed as sort of fluent, efficient, masterful readers. It's sometimes called an illiteracy problem instead of an illiteracy problem. So that's where you see the sort of rhetoric that X percent of the American population reads at sixth grade level, that kind of thing. 
And that's really, most of the literacy panics in the 20th century are actually like that, rather than being panics about people really not being able to read at all. The issue about distribution, though, is also a key one. And this really became apparent in the 1930s and then increasingly through the civil rights era, when social scientists started trying to map things like reading ability and access to informational sources across the landmass of North America, and particularly the United States. This was tied in with New Deal social science efforts in the 1930s originally. And what they find, of course, is that if you live in a place like New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, San Francisco, then you live in a world which is more or less saturated by print, not just hoardings, but you can, you know, libraries are plentiful, newspapers are plentiful, Reader's Digest, all that kind of stuff. And not just print, but also things like telecommunications. So telephones, radios, that kind of thing. But if you take all of these different forms of media, institution, and so forth, and map their distribution across North America, what you find is that for all of them in the 1930s, that sort of density, that sense of saturation, evacuates when you go south of the Mason-Dixon line, basically. The old Confederacy is like an information desert for most people living there. So even if there are libraries, for example, and in many places there aren't, if you're African-American, you don't have access to them. If, you know, do schools have libraries? A lot don't in the southern states. And so it's really in that era that this degree of kind of information inequality becomes really starkly clear in a way that it becomes very, very difficult simply to ignore it. And then the question is what you do, of course, but it gets picked up then by the NAACP and by the sit-in campaigners in the tail, era, tail end of uh, the Jim Crow era. But yeah, this idea that a kind of spatial distribution, inequality of distribution is really important, really comes from the 1930s, from that moment of social science. And there was this guy named Horace Mann Bond, who I found very impressive. And his main point was that we're confusing literacy with intelligence, right? So this is also the time period where all of these intelligence tests became real common, right? Yeah, Bond was um, a PhD graduate from the University of Chicago, African-American guy, who come up in that world of science of reading and educational psychology and that environment in the 1920s, and then went down to Alabama and other places in the Deep South to investigate and measure schooling and outcomes of schooling in terms of literacy for African-American students in particular. And one of the things about Bond is that you're right, this was the era of intelligence testing, and for most people who used intelligence tests, what they showed were sort of innate differences in ability. This was thought to be the point of them, that IQ was something that was kind of determined in us, and you could map it onto things like race. And Bond is unusual because he understood how to do intelligence tests and used them himself. But for him, the point of them was that they showed differences in social provision. So one of the things that he's able to show, for example, is that African-Americans in places like Chicago often do better in these tests than whites in rural Alabama. So it's not a racial thing. It's entirely to do with things like the inequality of information distribution. And by the uh, 50s and 60s, he's one of the leading African-American educational figures in this country and plays a key role, actually, in Brown versus Board of Education. So, yeah, I mean, he's, for me, a kind of personification of, firstly, how these issues were first made visible and then how, in making them visible, they could be addressed, I mean, you know, tackled. Well, it's also right around this time that the 
library science became a thing. And I think, I mean, we still have this here at Berkeley, our library science school, which was in the oldest building on campus, evolved into our information school, which is now being absorbed into our data science (laughs) (laughs) program. But, you know, I guess that summarizes a lot of the story of your book. But, you know, what exactly was library science as a discipline and why was it so controversial? Yeah, I mean, this, in a sense, this was the science that was supposed to underpin, firstly, the discovery of these information inequalities and then the ways of addressing them. So it really springs into... So, so it, was an, it was inherently an activist discipline to some degree, or at least a practical... Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, so it really, it has roots early in the 20th century, but it really kicks in in the late 20s, early 30s. And for those people who are championing it, really it was going to be an activist discipline, like you say. I mean, the, the idea was to train a population of people librarians who were going to go out into the field, as it were, and sort of match populations to information media, books, journals, things like that. And so these librarians had to be really informed social scientists in a certain way. And so library science gave helped give rise to things like this study that I just mentioned, where they mapped out different information sources across North America. Part of the point of that study was to show it to librarians who would be going off to work in places like southern Illinois or something like that, and would put this knowledge to use so as to create a sort of print environment in which local populations could thrive, so that they can make the most of it. And the idea of this was not just to kind of produce as many books as possible, to expose them to as many books as possible, because it was thought that that would be just futile in the end. The idea was to certainly get them more books, more print, but also to get them print that would be better fitted to their abilities. So the educational psychologists were trying to match the people to the content and the librarians were trying to match the content to the people? Yeah, that's basically it. And there was, and there still exists to some extent, a science of this called the science of readability that was championed in Columbia University above all. They had a whole lab of the science of readability. And the idea of that was to empirically investigate how well lay people of different kinds read different texts, and then try to apply that knowledge to create firstly kind of lists of readable words, but then after that to reform the publishing industry so that it would create books that were more aligned with the abilities of the reading population in the U.S. This is about like getting the newspaper down to the seventh grade level, right? Yeah, and they they actually did this with a bunch of classic texts like Moby Dick. Yeah, I remember like as a kid, I was just talking about this with my sister. When I was in fourth grade, we had, and I just looked it up on eBay, but we had these um, cartoon classics. And I remember going through pretty much 250 different classics. And they're all like 40 pages and they're almost like graphic novels. But I went through, you know, Moby Dick and David Copperfield and all the Hamlet. <laughs> they, had, they had all of them in these little condensed forms without huge words. And it definitely stimulated in me an interest in reading the real thing, for sure. I mean, it definitely had a positive impact on me. Yeah, I mean, that's the hope of it. You'd be like the poster child for this, right? Because the idea is that you might start with something like this. You build abilities and confidence, and then you read the full version of Maybe Dick, right? Or that might be a bit of a jump. Yeah, we were just, my sister and I were talking about it because she's trying to figure out how to get her son to want to read more. And I told her about this experience that I had. And so she said, well, where can I find these? (laughs) They still have them on eBay. 
they're out there. Yeah, I mean, I say this was the idea. And it's actually, I think, uh, it's of a piece with a number of what can often now look like naively paternalistic initiatives that took place in the 20s and 30s in, in various different advanced countries. You see it around radio a lot, where, uh, like the BBC was an example of this in the UK, that a medium like radio had to be guided so that it would give people, as Lord Reith, the first chairman of the BBC, said, it, the idea of the BBC was to give people slightly better than what they wanted. And the idea is that you can pull up, like a bootstrapping, you can pull up public culture by something like the BBC. And this idea with, something like that is the idea with these um, sort of corrected, refined books that the readability scientists were supposed to be creating. So it's not that it's going to replace Moby Dick. The idea is that it's, going, it's a kind of way of, lifting people up so that they're then able to become masterful readers that can deal with the real Moby Dick, that kind of thing. And of course, one of the things about this is that probably the most famous person to come out of the readability lab was Flesh. His readability formula equation was the one that became probably best known. And so it's out of that he then turns back and assails the whole science of reading as being a con in the 1950s. Well, there was this other thing going on in the 1950s, which was this concern over indoctrinating people and turning them into kind of conformist robots. And so the critiques of the way reading was taught were grounded in this sort of anti-totalitarian view of things, right? And I found the Jerome Bruner story, I mean, I've, I'm very familiar with that experiment, but I didn't realize how that became part of the whole conversation around education. Yeah, now, this was really important. And to, for any of us who are of my generation or maybe a little older and remember things like the wars over teaching mathematics, this is part of this as well. So it really comes out of the question that World War II provoked, not even World War II, but the rise of Nazism and Soviet communism, that here you have very advanced nations. So Germany, in a certain sense, is the most advanced nation on the world. Yet, it falls afoul of Nazism, totalitarianism, in a certain sense, of a very crude form. And so the question is, why? And can this be prevented in the future? And in, in the wake of World War II, there are programmatic studies that aim to sort of foster a notion of individual creative citizenship in contradistinction to what's held to be the kind of uh, cultural homogeneity of totalitarianism. And Bruno who was at Harvard, he had worked in the military and intelligence in World War II, and as, as a bunch of these people had, actually, becomes almost the sort of academic cheerleader for a notion of human creativity itself, which is very tied to this, that we're all individuals in the sense. What we are is like experimental scientists all the time. And that we don't really think by outside rule-following so much as by a constant kind of exploration we're always making hypotheses by seeing whether those hypotheses work or not and refining them and going back. And we're doing this at tremendous speed. And the people who are the best readers are the people who have a kind of hypothesis testing model for how they read. So as you imagine, this, as your eyes are moving across the line, you're all the time predicting what the next word is going to be. And the people who are really good readers are better at predicting this. So they're making hypotheses. And then they're experimentally seeing whether the hypothesis is borne out really fast. And if it's not, then they go back and they come up with another hypothesis. This is Bruno's idea. And um, as with the previous scientists of reading, very fast this becomes a program for teaching people how to do it. So in the 60s, you have new versions of how to teach, not just reading, but actually all kinds of academic practices like mathematics, which are premised on this kind of 
hypothetical testing model. And very much it's the, the notion here is we're going to create a citizenry that is liberal, autonomous, independent, you know, even at its extreme, somewhat anarchic, actually. Well, I mean, we still see this today where, on the one hand, we look at the Chinese educational system and we say, wow, look, they're scoring so well on PISA and so forth. But on the other hand, the American system encourages creativity and discovery. And it's why, you know, so many parents in China want to send their kids to the American educational system. It's fascinating to see how these debates play out, but it's taken on sort of a political dimension, right? I guess it always has had this political dimension. It's not obvious kind of what side belongs to what side politically, but how did this become so political? Yeah, this is a very important question, I think, because you're right, it's been political for a long time, 50, 60, 70 years. And it was political back in the 50s when Flesch launched his first attack on, on the science of reading. And one of the things he's very careful to say in the book is that readers should not assume that he's conservative politically, which means that he's afraid that they will. And so I think one thought is that the Brunner-style cognitive science reading as exploration does have a kind of anarchic quality to it. It's not about preservation of traditions or anything like that. It's about constant churn and upheaval. And I guess in a certain sense, there's a kind of conservative sensibility that reacts a little bit against that. It's also the, the Brunner thing is very much aligned with the notion that you recognize patterns and not individual characters. And so Flesch's point, which is that at core, you have to teach the recognition of individual characters because your, your readers are not going to be able to deal with new situations as they arise otherwise. There's a conservative mentality that appreciates that. But it's also the case that over the decades, to a certain extent, it's been whipped up as a kind of partisan fight in the way that certain other issues have, like climate scepticism, for example, vaccine scepticism now, where it's become, it's, it's, people have been urged to see this as a fight of the Jeffersonian commonsensical individual citizen against a secure, bureaucratic, elitist, sometimes corrupt hierarchy, where the scientists are seen as the elitists and the, the homogeneous, corrupt ones. And the Jeffersonian common sense people are the robust individual people who have to look up, you know, educate their own children one by one, pretty much. So it's taken on that, I think, somewhat opportunistically by companies that want to sell things. But the arguments are all, the arguments are all framed as scientific ones. Right. They were framed as scientific ones on both sides, yes. Which is one of the things that I think is somewhat dangerous about it when it comes to the current situation of public scepticism about scientific claims in general. Because I feel that the reading wars, the contentions about the science of reading, were pressing on millions of American citizens before most of the other issues that are associated with public scepticism about science really became big. So, you know, back in the 50s, say, if you were a typical American parent, you might not have worried that much about, you know, does smoking cause cancer or something like that. You might have been aware of the debates, but you might, well, might not have hit home as much. But every single person who was a parent had to care about this. And so, the, you know, there's a reason why Flesch's book is a stupendous bestseller. And it urges not only that the science of reading is wrong, but that the people who champion the science of reading are deliberately suppressing truth in the name of teachers' unions, the scientific community, which is suddenly seen as being a kind of outside 
imposing force, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it becomes political over the years, I think, because of this kind of dynamic. But there's something else that needs to be said about this, which is that it may be partisan political, but it's also been the case all the way through, and Flesch too argues this back in the 50s, that the people who are most disadvantaged by the whole word, whole pattern method are actually the poor minorities who are entirely reliant on public schools and don't have a choice. Because the more educated, by the time they land in this school environment, they already have learned some rudiments of phonics, right? Yeah, and they have alternatives, and they often live in households where the households are book-saturated, all this kind of stuff. And Flesch's point is that, in a certain sense, the phonics campaign should be politically radical, because really the people who stand to benefit are the disenfranchised, the poor, the minorities. And it's one of these paradoxes of modern American political culture that, in fact, the alignment in terms of political partisanship has worked out the way it has. But the alignment in terms of, as it were, sort of structural politics is more complicated than the partisanship allows for. And this is what we're seeing to some extent now with efforts in state legislatures to mandate the teaching of of phonics in elementary schools where you see a kind of alliance between politically conservative partisan forces and genuine grassroots movements in the inner cities and things like that, where you know African-American communities, for example, there's a strong pressure from them to adopt these you know, allegedly conservative methods. So it's a, it's a, I think it's, a, it's an interesting, somewhat dismaying and very consequential case of how the politics of science are working out more generally in modern America. But I mean, it seems like it's a, it's a bit of a false dichotomy. I mean, the differences between these different approaches can be exaggerated because you can combine the insights, right? I mean, it seems pretty obvious that you have to start with phonics in order to get those basic building blocks so that you can start reading, but that this idea that people are prediction machines and that they are pattern recognition machines, that's also pretty difficult to disagree with. And so is it just that we need to strike a balance between these two and and combine these insights into a unified approach to teaching reading? Yeah, I think so. You know, you mentioned that you had Daniel Willingham on board. This, as I take it, is part of his message in looking at educational psychology and reading. Yeah. His message is that you don't look at the best athletes and their practice to try to teach the beginning athletes. No, absolutely. And and I think you, you've put your finger on it with the kind of somewhat futility of the reading wars as they're now done. Because I agree. I think the one thing we found out, and it's hard to imagine this being really overturned, is that at a very basic level, you have to teach character-by-character interpretation. And whether that's technically phonics, because you have to sound it out, Maybe one can fight about that. But you have to get people to recognize actual characters and see how they build together to make words and phrases. But you get through that for most people pretty fast. Then you're on to much more tricky problems. Now, you could just do the kind of dogged thing of carrying on the same way, but that runs the risk of really turning people off in a terrible way. But then it becomes much less obvious what you do. I mean, because you are then into a world of teaching something like the hypothesis experiment mode or something like that, or reading by pattern recognition. It doesn't go away because you've gone through a phonics stage at the beginning. And I think one of the things, one of the messages that I was trying to get across in the Science of Reading book is that once you're beyond that very basic level of phonics character-by-character interpretation, 
it's not actually clear that the target that you're aiming at is one thing. So we tend to think of reading singular as one, what would it be, gerund, right, one verb. But if you look around empirically at what happens in the professional social world, this thing, if it is one thing, is carried out in lots of different ways. So I do history of science. It's one of my things that I do that. And so it's striking to me that, as far as I can tell, reading within technical scientific disciplines has real differences from reading in, say, literature classes or something like that. Or text messages. Or text messages, yeah, whatever it might be. And I suspect that one thing that we might do better is to disaggregate this notion a little bit and to accommodate for that disaggregation in maybe our high schools so that we're a little less reductive about things. And we accept that being a really good reader of text messages is not the same thing as being a really good reader of Moby Dick. But they're both good things. They're both worth having. And we want to train people to be good, to be masters of all of those things, which in a certain sense is what the people were aiming at in like 1900. But we're in a different world now. So so we have to adapt to that. You talk about how maybe we're becoming less tech-centric, right? And this goes back to the days of radio, right, where everyone thought, with radio, people process information differently and people will listen perhaps more to the radio and read less text. Do you think that today people are moving away from text or is it becoming even more text heavy? When people used to pick up the phone and call each other, now they you know, will have this 300 text exchange. In some ways, we're becoming more text centric. Yeah, I feel so. I can't cite you numbers off the top of my head, but my own sense of this is, and I think it's been reported in various places, is that, yes, we're becoming more text-centric. And we all experience this in a kind of anecdotal individual way, especially if you have teenagers. It sounds like you have teenagers. but So my teenagers are... I'm just sort of a teenager at heart, I think it is. They just are a teenager. <laughs> they don't, they, phones are not things that they're used to speak with. They're texting machines for them. And it's to a degree that I find crazy. Like if I'm driving to pick one of mine up and they know that I'm driving, and something happens and they're delayed or something, they'll still text me. And I, the phone goes ping, and I think, why are you doing this? You know perfectly well that I'm driving, and I can't just pick up the... Especially if it has a question mark on the end. That's not... That's... Yeah, but they're incredibly text-centric in that way. And in that way, I feel that something has gone on with the digital world which was completely not predicted 30 years ago. 30 years ago, it was all predicted that we would leave text behind, right? We'd all become visual, we'd be dealing with dynamic, perpetually changing multimedia representations. And some of that has happened, right? But we've become text-centric to an extent that I think nobody predicted then. The other part of this, of course, is that it's not only that we're text-centric, but the amazing kind of proliferation of memory means that nothing is ever lost, unless you deliberately delete it. Even then, it's probably not lost. And that, too, is something that I think is a radical difference between what was predicted and what's actually happened. Because it used to be predicted the shift away from print was a shift towards ephemerality. And it's really not that. It's a shift towards increasing inescapable permanence, where everything you ever do, however embarrassing, can be brought up 30 years later, which is why, hence, hence the European Union's right to be forgotten and things like that. And I feel that the world of both textual production and textual experience, like reading, is affected by that. This notion that everything goes, what's the pop song? Everything goes, this will go down on your permanent record. Everything goes down on your permanent record. 
And I guess this too is something that we need to train people to be masters of. It's notorious that teenagers do terrible things that end up they're vulnerable to for the rest of their lives. Well, Adrian, thanks so much for joining me. We barely scratched the surface. This book is wonderful. You have folks like Jacques Barzan and Wayne Booth making an appearance, but we also have Sesame Street (laughs) characters making an appearance. So, you know, there's a lot of richness in this book. It's called The Science of Reading. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. This was great. I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.